Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Doug Grothuis on using apologetics to make a compelling case for Christian faith. We need a focus for life, we need standards for living, and we also need the life of God within us because Christianity is not just a true and rational worldview. I've been arguing that for 45 years, but it's a way of life led by God himself. Doug Grothuis, next. With nearly three decades under his belt as a philosophy professor at Denver Seminary and author of many books, Dr. Doug Grothuis comes well-equipped to discuss making a persuasive case for Christianity. His revised second edition of Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith, has recently been released. And that's today's subject. Dr. Grothuis, what is apologetics and what's the biblical basis for it? Well, it's a good question because the term may deceive people. You might think that it means that you're saying you're sorry for something that you believe, which is uh, not something a Christian should do. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it means to give a defense or to give a case for the Christian faith. The way that I like to define it is that uh, we are defending Christianity as objectively true, compellingly rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. So, The biblical basis is really, I think, the whole Bible, because God reveals himself to humanity through nature, through scripture, through Christ, and we give reasons. Uh, The biblical writers give reasons for why what they are are saying is true. So, a classic text would be 1 Peter 3.15, which talks about always being ready to uh, give an answer to anyone who asks you why you believe. the reason for the hope that is within you, and then do this with gentleness and respect. I think we can also point to Jesus as an apologist and a philosopher. He thought perfectly well on his feet. He dealt with controversies wisely. In Matthew 22, he deals with three theological controversies and shows how brilliant he is. He deals with what we would call a church-state issue, then a question about the afterlife, and then another question about whether or not he's the son of David. And then also Paul in Acts 17 is a great apologetics example to us. He goes into the world of the pagan philosophers, the Epicurean and Stoics. He goes into a place called uh, Mars Hill and is able to give a very eloquent defense of Christianity in that setting. So I really think that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about God's revelation as true and rational and relevant to the whole of life. And then we can point out certain uh, exemplars. Of course, the utmost one, the ultimate one is Jesus himself. But then uh, take a look at Paul in the book of Acts, particularly Acts 17. And in the history of the church, we have a great group of witnesses like St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Blaise Pascal more recently, C.S. Lewis, even more recently, Lee Strobel. So it's really a grand discipline And it serves evangelism. So I don't view apologetics as something we study in and of itself, although that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And we want to think critically and well about defending our faith. But 
it has two essential reasons, and that is, or purposes, that is to help bring people to Christ, to remove obstacles between them and the cross of Christ, and then also to build up believers who are having doubts or questions or issues. Even John the Baptist did. We see that in Matthew 11. He was in prison, and he sent some of his followers to Jesus to ask him if Jesus really was the promised Messiah. And Jesus gave his disciples reasons to believe he was the promised Messiah. So Jesus didn't say, well, just have blind faith or take a leap of faith or what's wrong with you, John? You shouldn't doubt, repent of your sin. Jesus is doing apologetics right there for a believer, for John the Baptist. It's a powerful passage there, Matthew 11, 1 through 11. Perhaps this uh, question is perennial across the ages, but what are people most hungry for today in this moment? Is it, is it purpose? Is it meaning? Is it comfort? Is it health? Does it depend on their, the season of life in which they find themselves or what? Well, I think at the deepest level, people realize they need purpose. They need a reason for life, a reason for their own being beyond just their immediate interests. Now, they, that might be covered up by div- what Pascal would call diversions, that we realize that we are mortal, uh, that we have terrible weaknesses, that we're frustrated. So one way of dealing with that, instead of pursuing truth and seeking God, is to simply divert or distract ourselves in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we have a million opportunities to do that with social media and all the rest of it. But I think, for example, let's go back, what, 20 years to Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. That's one of the best-selling books of all time. And I might have a few critiques of it, but I think the reason it is, is that first of all, it does present the gospel. And second, you know, the first line of that book is, it's not about you. And we think, wait a minute, no, in our culture, everything's about (laughs) us. Right. But the way you find out how you should live is by realizing life is not about you. However, you have a part to play in God's drama. So I think we need to draw people into that, that our lives are more meaningful than our careers, than our self-image, than our looks. And we also need to think about mortality, that we only have a finite amount of time to live and to try to understand life and to make the most of every second that God gives us. But that sense of purpose and that desire for purpose can be occluded and almost uh, destroyed just by distractions, diversions, Uh, the religion of the self, which is so powerful now. And I think one of the key problems is that when people are detached from the meaning that God has given and the meaning that that God has revealed in Scripture, then they're without an anchor, and they're really uh, floating on the seas. And now we see this especially with respect to sexual identity. And this is something I talk about in the book, I have a chapter on uh, distortions of Christianity. One of them is that it uh, encourages hatred for people who are not heterosexual and monogamous, which is not true. But what I'm so concerned about is that people deny the authority of God, that God created male and female and showed us the way to flourish mm-hmm. in our sexuality, which is through the commitment and uh, fidelity of marriage. And now people are saying that they can define marriage any way they want. 
They can create their own gender identity. I read an article recently said there were 64 versions of gender. Hmm. That's probably a conservative count now. So we need a focus for life. We need standards for living. And we also need the life of God within us because Christianity is not just a true and rational worldview. I've been arguing that for 45 years, but it's a way of life led by God himself. Uh, Christians are assured that if they come to Christ, that they have overcome the world, they're born again, they're new creatures in Christ, God lives within them, and God can direct them. So we can actually have an interactive association with God himself. And that is the purpose of life. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Or I think also of the refrain we find in the Old Testament several times, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we might think, wait a minute, fear, isn't fear always bad? No, it isn't. Having a reverential awe and respect for God is appropriate for creatures, especially for sinful creatures. So we want to respect and honor and worship God and realize that we stand before what Kierkegaard called the audit of eternity. Hmm. And if we are Christians, then our sins are forgiven. We're justified through the work of Christ. We have eternal life even now, and it will continue forever uh, into the new heavens and the new earth. But we still should fear God. We should have a healthy concern about God's uh, view, God's judgments on reality. So we will avoid certain ways of living, sinful ways, ways that rebel against God and his purpose for life. And when we do sin, we can go back to 1 John. Uh, if anyone uh, sins, then we confess our sins and God is faithful and, ju and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Well, the book is Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. And it's our pleasure today to be talking with uh, the author, Dr. Douglas Grotheis. He's a professor of philosophy. This is the second edition uh, of this book. But I'm wondering whether we're, we're uh, maybe eating dinner with a, with a family member or friends or we're uh, riding on the bus somewhere or flying on a plane and we get in some kind of conversation, whether said dismissively or sincerely, what, as you see it, are the most common objections to Christianity today? Uh, the, right. Having said what you just said, you'd wonder, why would anybody not want to <laughs> exactly. embrace Jesus? But they, there's a lot of reasons. I think we have to figure that out person by person. Mm. There are some great perennial issues. Uh, I think one of the most significant ones is what's called the problem of evil. And that is, if there is a God who is both all good and all powerful, then uh, why is there any evil at all? Or, or at least, why is there so much evil? So if God is all good, he wouldn't want it. If God's all powerful, he could prevent it. And there, there's no real quick answer to that. But there is an answer. Uh, I can sketch it out. I have a long chapter in the book about this. But the issue is, how do we explain good and evil in light of the overall evidence for God. And I think the overall case that there is a creator and a designer and a lawgiver is very strong. 
And so Christianity is in much better shape rationally than, let's say, atheism or pantheism or polytheism. Now, if that's the case, we have to say, well, what is the Christian understanding of good and evil? And we start with creation. God made all things good. And when he finished up with human beings, he said, very good. And then human beings fell into sin and the world was cursed. So we live in a broken, groaning world in rebellion against God. But God did not banish us from a relationship with him. Now, the first parents were kicked out of the garden, and we all live east of Eden, so to speak. However, God continues to reveal himself in nature. We see that. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth proclaims his handiwork. See that in Romans 1 also, especially verses 18 through 21, uh, that God is seen or understood or felt in the creation. So, how do we understand this issue of evil? And I think the best way is to say that uh, going back to Genesis fifty twenty, where Joseph is talking about how his brothers sold him into slavery, and he gives this beautiful speech, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So because his God is all good and all powerful, then he is smarter than any one of us, and he has infinite wisdom. So he can use what people or even demons or Satan intend for evil for a greater good uh, that could not be achieved otherwise. And then I want to take it into two very personal areas. One is we're not just giving a general abstract account of God, good and evil and saying Christianity fares better than the other worldviews. We want to focus this on Jesus himself. So the best evidence that God is love and that God is justice is the incarnation and death, burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The classic verse is God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever would believe on his son would not perish but have everlasting life. And we know from, that's John 3.16, we know from, from Philippians 2, that the son left his place with the father and the spirit and came to earth and uh, made himself a servant, even dying on a cross to atone for our sin. And there is excellent historical evidence that the gospels are true, that the epistles and the rest of the New Testament are true to history and give us a coherent and compelling worldview. So we're not just saying, well, there is some God who could bring good out of evil and let's hope he does. (laughs) Uh, Rather, we have the profound and existentially gripping evidence of what Jesus Christ has done. And as this is communicated, uh, Dr. Grotheis, uh, what you've been communicating, the essence of the gospel and responding, bringing that essence of the gospel into uh, your answer to the objections to the questions that might be raised. And again, they could be raised sincerely or maybe trying to change the subject. But nonetheless, you say also that it is important to be both rational, as obviously apologetics is is based on that truth, the rationality of truth, but also winsome. Right. Uh, can, can you talk about that, that, that attitudinal uh, yeah. basis? I try to bring that out in several places in the book. I talk about the character the Christian character of the apologist and 
we could really, I think, sum it up with humility, that we should be grateful to God, that he's revealed himself to us, that he has saved us through the work of Jesus Christ, and that he's given us access to him through the Holy Spirit in a relationship with God. And so we should be humble. And I guess I would add to that also courageous. We should have the courage of our convictions. So we shouldn't shrink back when we have an opportunity to testify to the grace of God. And sometimes we do. We're not always as direct or straightforward as we could be. So we regroup and we do it again. Mm -hmm. But I think the humility and the courage needs to be combined with the willingness to listen. Uh, Scripture says to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger in the book of James. So when I'm talking to someone about the gospel, I, well, or anything, I try to listen well. And there's an expression in jazz called having big ears. Uh, and it doesn't have to do with your anatomy. <laughs> it, ha- it has to do with listening to what the other musicians are playing. So you know yourself what you should play. That's called group improvisation. I take actually a lot of lessons from jazz uh, for life and for apologetics too. So what are the barriers that this person I'm talking with or emailing with What are their barriers to becoming a Christian? So it might be the problem of evil. It might be, uh, well, didn't Darwin disprove design in nature? Or some people go so far as to say that Jesus never even existed. It's called mythicism. And thanks to the internet, that's been revived in the last uh, 15 or 20 Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Although it's a completely unsupportable position, even uh, secular scholars, like 99.99% will say Jesus certainly existed because we have so much documentary evidence from the Gospels and sources outside the Gospels and so on. So uh, the character is so important. Everything needs to be soaked in prayer. So if we're thinking about engaging in apologetics or evangelism, we need to pray. I always like to say before, during, and after. So if I have an opportunity to be with a non-believer, I pray that I'll get that opportunity to share the gospel or somehow uh, insinuate in a virtuous way the truth of Christianity. And then uh, after I do that, I, I pray for the person. And I always do that for my speaking engagements. So basically, pray without ceasing, as Paul says, which means pray before, during, and after. Part of this second edition, and there, there's much that you've added to it, and if we have time, I'd like to ask you about what all has been added, but I'd like to jump to one of the chapters, Lament as Christian Apologetic. You've even written a book, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament about your late wife's illness and all of that that came with it. But uh, can you talk about that? How is, what is Lament, and how does it right. uh, work as a Christian apologetic? Right. Well, this is sort of the other side of the problem of evil, because Mm. what I just talked about is one of the greatest objections to Christianity. But then how Christians suffer, if we suffer well before God and others, that suffering becomes evidence that God is real in our lives. So lament is basically the heartfelt cry of dejection or discouragement or even anger 
before the face of God. So we've got about 60 Psalms of lament in the Bible. Two of them don't end with praise or thanksgiving. That would be Psalm 39 and Psalm 88. Psalm 88, I think, is the most dour of all the Psalms, but it's Holy Scripture and it's a prayer. It's a man named Heman the Ezrahite who is chronically ill and his friends are ill and not doing well in life. And the last verse of Psalm 88 is translated one of two ways. One is, darkness is my closest friend. And the other one is equally sad. All my friends are in darkness. Hmm. So you think, what's that doing in the Bible? Um, the Bible is supposed to be about faith and joy and so on. Well, God encounters us in the fullness of our personality. And Romans 8 says that the world is groaning in travail, awaiting its final redemption. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning. Our spirits are groaning. So the key, I think, is to groan before God and to learn how to take our disappointments, our discouragement, even our anger to God and keep that focus on God. Uh, what I say in my book, Walking Through Twilight, is that I had some very terrible moments dealing with Becky's illness. And I sometimes responded very badly with extreme anger and extreme anger at God. But at the end of the day, and I mean, sometimes literally at the end of the day, I'd say, Lord, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. And I'm quoting Peter there from John 6. Mm -hmm. So I think when Christians suffer well, meaning they don't pretend everything is wonderful when it isn't, and when they don't turn their back on God, but they keep engaging God and trying to find meaning, they're trying to sculpt or smelt meaning out of suffering, that this is a great witness to the power of God in the midst of our suffering. And we follow one who suffered the worst possible situation on the cross. He cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet in that act, in his suffering and death, he was atoning for the sins of the world. And he would be resurrected. He was resurrected and ascended. In my Anglican church every week, we say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That is a pretty good way to summarize the mm -hmm. hope of the gospel. Not just a hope, but a rational hope based on knowledge. You also say, as you, you're defending the truth of Christianity, that there is a strong connection between hope and truth. Hope without truth is pointless. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about hope about the ultimate things, does life have meaning? Will there be an afterlife? Does my small life on, on the vast canvas of reality mean anything? Then it's one thing to just say, well, I hope so. And I, I hope the big guy upstairs likes me when I die. Yep. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. That is thin gruel. Mm -hmm. So biblically, in fact, I did a sermon on this recently called This Hope Does Not Disappoint Us, which was taken from Romans chapter 5. Biblically, hope in God, hope in the gospel, is based on knowledge. It's not, well, maybe, possibly. It's, we have this hope which has been secured through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me give an example of this. I would often comfort my late wife, Becky, in her illness, her dementia, by reading passages from Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, no tears, no curse. Or 1 Corinthians 15, will be raised immortal and death will be no more. And it was not just, uh, this is a positive thought for the day. Uh, Rebecca and I worked very hard to have a 
true, rational, and compelling worldview. We worked on that together with our books and our ministry and our prayers. So we had the anchor of reality, the anchor of Christ, and that was still extremely difficult. But we could look beyond death to eternal life because Christ died, and it said that for the joy set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. And there was joy in his resurrection, and there will be joy for us in our resurrection as well. So this is not just uh, an intellectual enterprise. It is. I mean, I've got 839 pages, and I don't even know how many footnotes. I told a friend of mine, you count the footnotes for me. I'm too busy. (laughs) So this is definitely an intellectual Mm -hmm. uh, enterprise of the highest order, but... It's also as visceral and existentially significant as you could possibly imagine. If you would uh, talk about the value of apologetics in, yes, giving us intellectual arguments, if you will, but Mm -hmm. more than that, the value of apologetics in strengthening the faith of believers. I think that's very important. I think some believers are undeveloped in the area of the intellect with respect to having a reason for the hope that is within them. And they will sometimes run away from challenges as opposed to addressing them. And the best way to deal with a question you have, or maybe even a doubt, is to identify exactly what it is and then start to seek seek out answers about it. I've been doing that really ever since I became a Christian. I think for the first few months I was a Christian, I didn't understand apologetics and the life of the mind and a theology of the intellect. But then once I read this book by Francis Schaeffer, the God who's there in the fall of 1976, that set the course for my thinking, my living, my ministry as Christianity is not only true and meaningful, it's also rational and it gives us a perspective on the whole of life that is meaningful and powerful. This is the second edition of Christian Apologetics, a comprehensive case for biblical faith. You've added a number of new chapters based upon changes in culture, issues that are more current. Is this your magnum opus, your most important work? Well, I think so. I don't think I'll write anything longer than this. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if there'll be a third edition. Uh, There might be, Lord willing, but... Mm -hmm. This, this is my major statement, basically, of why I am a Christian and why I think everyone else should be, too. Well, you write, uh, this is my last question, you write, what matters most for everyone in this life and beyond is one's orientation to Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnation of God. Why is that? Right. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Christ Jesus as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2. So we really need to take Christ seriously. As John Stott said, you have to do something with Jesus. You have to respond to him because he says these, in a way, outrageous things, you know. Uh, I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. And he calls us to believe in him, to turn away from our selfishness, our sins, and to come to him. And that's what I did by the grace of God about 46 years ago. And I've had lots of struggles and issues and questions, but ultimately I have never looked back.
You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Denver Seminary philosophy professor, Dr. Doug Grothuis, author of Christian Apologetics, a comprehensive case for biblical faith. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Katie Barnwell on the Ministry of Bible Translation. And there is a general process that they go through, first drafting and then team checking, team checking, and then what they call community testing. So they take it out to speakers and test to see whether people really do understand the message. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.